And welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 55, in which my guest will be the veteran Northeastern wrestling referee, Dave Dwinell. Now, this was originally supposed to be last week's episode. And we bumped it a bit in the on the occasion of the passing of Lanny Poffo. I put together a last-minute episode, which I think turned out very well, with Keith Greenberg talking about Lanny. But now we are ready to get back to Dave, and this is going to be a very, very interesting interview, which I will talk about in just a second. Not too much jibber-jabber this week. A couple of quick things that I want to mention. Actually, first of all, this is related to Lanny. In the wake of the passing of Lanny Poffo, I also neglected to mention, because it was reported on the same day, in fact, also the passing of Sodbuster Kenny J, who fans of the AWA specifically will remember, fondly remembered as a part of that promotion as an enhancement talent and a very familiar face on weekly AWA TV and live events, basically from the 60s all the way through into the 80s. So Sodbuster Kenny J also passed away earlier this month, and we remember him, our thoughts are with him, and our thoughts go out to his family and friends. I'd also like to mention that I've got some new copies in of my book, Blood and Fire, the Unbelievable Real-Life Story of Wrestling's Original Sheik. Got some new copies in. For people that have been sitting around waiting, if you do want an autographed copy of the book, please do not hesitate to reach out to me via email, Solomon at yahoo.com. All right, having said that, let's get to this week's fascinating interview. I did this a few weeks back, as I said, and uh, I'm glad to be able to share it with you this time. Dave is somebody that I've gotten to know over the past couple of years, and I'm glad that I did. He is a very, very wonderful man with a great memory and great experiences, and I'm glad that he's so willing to talk about them. If you are a fan of WWF wrestling of the 80s and 90s, particularly in the Northeast area, Dave was one of the most recognizable referees from that era on WWF cards, NWA cards, other indie cards, throughout really the the Northeast area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, I believe Pennsylvania. So some of you may know him without even knowing his name. And he really had some memorable things to share with me today. For example, I learned that Bruno Sammartino appeared at the 1964 New York World's Fair, which I never knew. And also that Dave worked the Heroes of Wrestling pay-per-view. So he's got stories to share about that infamous evening about working for Pro Wrestling USA when they were trying to put something together in the Northeast, about getting started with the WWF in the early 80s, and you know, working the first matches of legends, future legends, things like that. 
and getting to know people in the business. He's one of those folks that really let you understand and realize that there's so many people in the business that might be completely unassuming that you may not know have some of the greatest stories and experiences you can ever imagine. And actually, a lot of those are collected in Dave's book, his memoir. It's called Ring Man. I'll be talking more about that later, and I'll be sharing posts, links as to how you can purchase copies of that book. And so I encourage you to check that out. Check out Dave's book if you haven't. It's really a compelling read. So having said that, let's get to my interview with Dave Dwinell, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome someone that I have had the pleasure and the privilege to get to know over the last couple of years through events like uh, the International Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, for example. He is somebody that has worked in the wrestling business as a referee for, for three decades. He was involved in wrestling, particularly in the northeastern United States, New York, New Jersey, area. We'll be talking about that. I would give you a list of people whose matches he has worked, but I we would be here all day, and we will certainly be getting to a lot of those names. But uh, any of your favorite, uh, particularly WWF stars uh, in the Northeast, in the 80s, in the 90s, and beyond, he's also worked on various indie shows in the area, and, and even the NWA when they would come to town. Um, I, it is my pleasure to welcome him to Shut Up and Wrestle Mr. Dave Dwinell. Dave, thank you for coming on. Well, Brian, thank you very much for having me. And before we start, I'd just like to say two things. Number one, congratulations on doing such a really superb job on the recent uh, Vice documentary, uh, The Nine Lives of Vince McMahon. Thank you. And also on your book, Blood and Fire, being nominated for an award by the Wrestling Observer. Um you 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 certainly deserve congratulations on both those items, and I just like to start off by saying, well, saying thank that. you. You know, I think in in fairness, I have to say, I think the only qualification to be uh, eligible for that award is that the is that it's a wrestling book that came out in 2022. So hopefully, hopefully, um, I I have a good showing in the votership. I was encouraging people to at least consider it. I know there were a couple of other good books great books that came out in 2022. But actually, before we even continue, I forgot to mention in the introduction, but speaking of books, Dave, uh, Dave is also the author of his own book. It's called Ring Man, My 32 Years in the Surreal World of Pro Wrestling. And it contains a lot of his memories. I have it. It's a great book. A lot of his memories and anecdotes uh, just being in the ring with, as I said, just some of the all-time greats, you name it. I mean, major stars of the, of, of the late 20th century, 80s, 90s, even into the 2000s. And it's a fair bet that Dave was probably in the ring with those guys. So, well, thank you. Um, you know, the name, the name is not a household name, but many people have said, well, who's Dave Dwinnell when I've done podcasts? But then they see the picture and they go, oh, yeah, I remember seeing you on the garden shows, or I remember watching you at the Nassau Coliseum. And, um, you know, I, I wrote really wrote the book, uh, not because I'm someone famous, but because I think it's nice to document what it was like behind the scenes from a person who spent a lot of time observing because I had a lot of time to observe in the locker room. And um, I, I wanted to share a book with the fans. It's dedicated to fans of all ages and uh, generations. 
And I wanted it to be a fun book, a fan book, and um, kind of like because whenever I'm sitting in a bar with friends or or family members, they go, well, "What was it really like back then?" So, it, it, I think it's a fun book, and I think the readers uh, are enjoying it. Those that are buying it, thanks and for mentioning it. No, no, it's my pleasure. And it's funny you mentioned how you know even if people don't know your name, they'll recognize you. And and you know I've had that same experience because first of all, I even and I told you this when when we've talked. <laughs> That I remember seeing you when I was a kid. I remember seeing you as a fan. Again, I didn't know what your name was, but I saw you. I've definitely seen you on some WWF cards, but also some indie shows that I've been on. I know, I, I know for sure that you've worked. But that would happen with a lot of referees. There would be people that where I would, I would know the face, I would know them, but I didn't know what their name was. And I remember another guy like that. I think we mentioned was um caputo what was his name bobby caputo billy caputo billy caputo very good friend passed away a few years ago yeah i mean another you know instantly recognizable even if you didn't know what his name was and and i remember seeing him on indie cards in brooklyn and queens and then also even seeing him for the wwf in the garden or nassau coliseum and this goes back to the days like we talked about when you first broke in if, I think you had said before it was about 1982, right? 1982, yes. When you first broke in, that was still the era when the referees were handled through the State Athletic Commission, no? Right. You had to be licensed. I had to be licensed in each state in which I worked. And um, my first match was in 1982 with a 21-year-old Eddie Gilbert and Johnny Rods. And uh, it was kind of interesting because, um, first of all, I, I was surprised they got the license. Um, <clears throat> as you said, you had to be licensed by the state. I wasn't aware of that. And so I, after going through a number of things, I, I did get licensed. And then I got assigned to the Westchester County Center in front of 5,000 people. And I had never stepped foot in a ring. I never went. There were no wrestling schools for refs at that point. Never stepped foot in a ring. I wasn't even sure which ropes to climb through. Never talked <laughs> to a wrestler. And here I am going to my first show, uh, wondering, gee, if they don't like me, could they throw me out of the ring? Um, you know, is it real? I didn't even know if it was oh, all God. prescribed. Yeah. So <clears throat> I get to the show, Arnold Skolan. Um, it was at the White Plains County Center in Westchester County, and Arnold Skolan was the uh, fellow running the show. Um, right. It was his show, him and his wife. And so you know, he says, uh, you better go upstairs. It's getting late. Talk to Rods. So I'm walking up the stairs and I'm going, what do I talk about? The weather? Uh, how's the family? <laughs> Is wrestling real? You know, it was like, you know, it, it was quite an experience. But thank God for Johnny Rods, one of the kindest, nicest people you'd ever want to meet in a business. He not only got me through the match, but he made me an integral part of it. I, I disqualified him. He pushed me. I pushed him. And then I told him if he didn't knock it off, I was going to have him fined $2,000 by the state. And I got a tremendous pop from the audience. So he um, really, um, I, I was so very fortunate to have him as my first match. And, and, and young Eddie Gilbert, 21 years old. Wow. And it, it had to be tough back then when you you're kind of in the dark, like you said, because, I mean, well, as we all know, or maybe we don't know, but as a lot of us know, nowadays, the referees, you know, they're an employee of the promotion. They work for the promoter. If it's mm -hmm. WWE, the, the referees work for the company. If it's an indie show, the referees work for, you know, whoever is running the show. So it's very different. I 
I talked to, I once uh, sat down with Dick Kroll, who another of the great referees of that era. And I remember him telling me about how tough it was in those days because you had to know or you had to figure out what the big spots were going to be, what you needed to watch out for, or, or even who was going over. And, and it was so protected that sometimes it was difficult even to find out. Well, the only people allowed in a locker room were the wrestlers and the refs. Um, kayfabe was in full force. The audience was not the audience of today. The audience was blue-collar workers smoking, drinking, and betting on the matches. A completely different audience. And and they meant, uh, I, I would say 60 or 60 or 80% probably thought it was real, or at least part of it was real. Hmm. Okay. And they'd come up to me in a locker room sometime, uh, reporters or newspaper people outside the locker room, and they'd say, uh, is this real? And I'd go, um, and I'd point to Andre and say, well, go ask him. I'm not sure. We don't stay in the same locker rooms, and they don't talk to me, so I don't, I don't really know. And um, the guy would just walk. I would just guy would just walk away. But the state officials, when I started, thought it was boxing. They said if a wrestler ever puts his hands on you, disqualify him on the spot. And I'm going, gee, that's when I'm not. I'm not seeing that on television. You know, I mean, not guys like uh, Dick Kroll or Jack Lotz or Billy Caputo. I'm talking about the old timers that wore the gray shirts and the, and mm -hmm. the work clothes in the ring. Yeah. Um, and, and I knew that wasn't true, but uh, little by little, they started weeding out some of the state officials and they kept people like myself, fortunately, that um, seemed to know, you know, seemed to work well with the rest of us. But no, no one ever bought a ticket to see me. Uh, I th always thought my job was to make the boys look good. And if I did that, I would probably stick around. And uh, so I always tried to work with them. I tried to make sure I, I, I didn't steal any thunder from them. I tried. Uh, Raj told me, your job back in the 80s, your job is to be the sheriff. You take command in a ring. You do not... Um, you do not favor the face. You do not favor the heel. And you act like you, you try to make this as realistic as possible. And that's what I tried to do. And I think the uh, wrestlers kind of appreciated the fact that I was willing to um, work with them and not say, well, I'm a state official and I'm a big shot or something like that, you know. But that's so important because, you know, the referee, like you said, is there to really try to enforce the realism of what you're watching. Like, you know, as a fan, you're sitting there and you're going, these wrestlers are out of their minds. These guys are nuts and they're characters and they're wild and crazy. But this referee is, is just a regular guy trying to do his job, trying to call the action right down the middle. Very serious. You know, you can't, you know, you, you don't want to be, you know, laughing or anything like that. And, and I don't even like nowadays when I see that referees will kind of sell some of the moves that the wrestlers do, like they'll react and in, in a if a wrestler does a big slam or something, the referee will will sell it like like uh, like I, like he's relating. Or to jump how, up in the ring. He jumps yeah, up in the ring. But I, I mean, never even, jump. I I never had that experience when somebody got slammed that I would have to jump up in the ring. You know, it was. But even was facially, extreme. even facially, they'll sell it. Like they'll they'll sell it in their face. Like oh, that that had to mm. hurt. Like something like that. I always feel like a referee should be very serious, like he's seen it all, you know, very matter of fact. And and that really is the job of the referee to try to sell the, the reality of it. 
and it was you know especially in the days when kayfabe was in and in the days when um it, it, again you were appealing to an audience that thought that this was um you know just that, that what they were doing was real and um it was an exciting time too you know it was it was a, it was a great time I, I think just working uh so many characters in those days in and out of the ring the characters you might say <laughs> right you know and I know Dick told me that it was sometimes challenging because in the in those earlier years, especially, you were kind of serving two masters. Like you had a you were working for the athletic commission. You also had to answer to the wrestling promotion. And sometimes you could be kind of caught in the middle. Like you didn't really know who you were supposed to be loyal to. Did you ever find that? Well, not really. Um I felt I was working with the wrestlers and I wasn't worried about the state hurting me, but I wouldn't want to have annoyed the wrestlers to the point where they would want to want to actually hurt me. So uh, you, you just want to, and plus you you want a nice atmosphere in the ring. I mean, you got to work together. The wrestlers would work with you. You would work with them, and um, you know sometimes they would even change things in a ring. I'm sure they probably don't do that as much today, but sometimes they'd even change things in a ring to get a bigger pop out of the audience but uh sometimes some of the older guys if i could just tell a funny story please do no i actually i can't i can't say this story in here it's a little <laughs> a little too much over the edge but there, there were guys that tried to make you laugh in a ring too one night um you know the um they they, they would say things under their breath just to right. see if, if the new guy if the new guy would crack up in the ring or something like that but i i had a tremendous um it was a tremendous opportunity to work with so many of the first matches of, of of the new people who would come in, who later went on to be stars. Um, I, I worked with uh, Dick Kroll and um, Jack Lotz and all those guys. I worked with Dick a lot. Dick was on the first Garden Show I worked, and he was very helpful also. And he was the dean of dean of referees in, in those days. But um, Many of the older refs, I was a young kid at the time in my 30s, the refs were a little bit older than me. I would always get the new kids in town. So I'd get the matches of people, first matches. I had the third match of The Undertaker, uh, the, uh, the Undertaker, the Dinko Warrior, some of his first matches. When he came in, He, the Ultimate Warrior was still wrestling under the name Dingo. Mm -hmm. The Hart Foundation, when they first came in, they weren't on top. They, they were the sub-matches. And they said, well, let the new kid take the sub-matches. We want the bonafide stars. So I got to work with all these guys when they came in, um, a, a very young 22- uh, or 23-year-old, uh, Kurt Henning, when he first came in. Uh, I could go on and on with so many guys, uh, Shawn Michaels, um, all these guys. When they when they first came in, uh, I ended up getting their matches because, again, they, they, they were not on top. They were in the undercards. And they hadn't developed. And then, of course, once they would get to the point of being the stars, um, some of the older refs would get them. And then when they'd leave the WWF, I worked with three of the largest promotions on the East Coast at the time. I'd get them again at the end of their career. So what was happening, I used to call myself the Alpha Omega ref, the beginning and the end. I'd get, I'd get guys like Yokozuna. When he was with Afa's promotion, a small promotion Afa was running, and he was wrestling as Coquina Maximus. Right. And then I had him at the end of his career, one of his last matches, when he was at the famous, uh, infamous, I should say, Heroes of Wrestling, uh, which I did the main event in. You, well, how did we never talk about that? Wow. So you worked the I Heroes like of Wrestling. 
I mean, that has to be for my money, and I'm not I'm not saying anything that most people wouldn't agree with, but that's got to be the worst pay-per-view event of all time. Um I I have no comment as far as that goes, <laughs> but I'll leave that up to the the voters. But now, I will say, yeah, I, I will say it's the only time in my 32-year career that I ever went into the ring with no finish. Oh my god. I'm not surprised. Um uh, Jim Neidhart was supposed to take the uh, supposed to take the pin, as far as I could remember, and he had just been called back up with Vince, and Vince told him he didn't want him looking bad because he was going to be coming in with Vince. So we're getting ready to go into the ring, and it was supposed the original match was supposed to be Bundy and uh, Bundy against uh, Yokozuma in the main event, which um, would have been a high flying affair for sure. <laughs> and um, and uh, the sub main event was um, Roberts against um, Jim Neidhart. Uh, Roberts wasn't really uh, poor, poor Jake wasn't in any condition to no. be wrestling that night. So they made it. We, we just they, they no, we they decided to make it a tag team. So we're getting ready to go in a ring in about two minutes. And uh, Neidhart goes, I'm not taking a pin. And I'm going, hello, really? And he goes, no, no, I'm not taking a pin. I was told not to take the pin. So I said, well, what are we going to do for a finish? He goes, I don't know. So we get in a ring, and um, uh, I didn't really know what to do. So we just, and so I told Bundy, I was very, very friendly with Bundy. Uh, Chris was a great guy. And I, I said, what are we going to do? He said, just follow me. So he was not the legal man in a ring, but I think I said, Wendy, throw me out of the ring. I'll pretend I'm hurt. And the other, some other referee will have to deal with this. I don't want to <laughs> deal with this. Throw me out of the ring because I'm not doing that. So he said, just follow me. So he knocked Jake down and he covered him and they weren't the legal men in a ring. And I counted one, two, three, and we might still be there tonight. <laughs> um, so what happened was I took some heat on, on uh, uh, from people's comments on YouTube and stuff going, uh, that ref was pretty dumb. He, he um, he, um, those weren't the legal men in the ring and he, and he counted to three. And I, I always said, well, I got confused because the match was a little bit out of control, but, uh, basically I would have let Bundy pin me just to end the match. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was, it was kind of a, um, kind of a long night, you might say. Well, I, I have to ask you, cause I watched that live on pay-per-view and I mean, they had, a lineup of stars, you know, that's what got a lot of people to order that show. Um, <laughs> if you could remember, what was it like it, backstage at that show? Did they have a sense that the show was totally off the rails or did they think it was going well? Well, um, I was impressed with the array of stars that were there. And I was a little disappointed that Gordon Soley, who was ill at the time, was supposed to be the announcer. And they brought in a fellow at the end who, unfortunately, did not know too much about wrestling. And um, I forget his name. He was from one of the sports stations. And Dutchman, Man, Dutch Mantel was the other announcer. And I, I thought it had great potential. And they were going to try to see if they could do a once-a-month pay-per-view with, with some of the stars of the past. And if they had got a good buy rate, I think they were going to. But it didn't happen. And I, I just wasn't sure how it was going to go. Um, but as the show went on, it just didn't seem to have a lot of flow to it. 
and um, I, I, I worked um, I worked very hard in the matches to try it again to try to do what I could to add some kind of a realism to it and uh, it, it just didn't work and everybody kind of agreed and, 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 and it wasn't um, replicated after that yeah, I mean, I guess they were going for the idea of almost like, like you said, like an old timer show, like a month, you know, a monthly show where it would be the favorite wrestlers you remember coming back. And, you know, and a lot of those guys, which a lot of fans maybe not even didn't even realize a lot of those guys were still very active on the independent circuit. It's not like they all were just sitting at home, you know, not wrestling anymore. But I remember actually the only really solid the match that really worked was the one match they had on there. Which which had younger guys in it. They had one match where if it, I think it was two cold Scorpio and Julio Romeo Roselli. No, Romeo Roselli. No, Julio. Think, yes, yeah. Julio. You know. Julio De Niro. Well, yes, he, exactly. But I think he was wrestling as Julio Fantastico or something like that. But it was him and and um, two cold. And they had a they had a phenomenal match. And I actually years right. later, I ran into Julio in a locker room at an indie show. And I actually said to him, I want to tell you, you and two gold Scorpio had the only really good match on that infamous heroes of wrestling. And he knew exactly what I was talking about as soon as I started talking. Right. Well, actually, um, I, I did not realize how much interest there was in classic uh, wrestling from the 80s 90s and 2000s i didn't realize it until i got a phone call from someone that said we're doing a 20th anniversary of that show and we'd like to interview you and i started looking around the internet and i see all these websites popping up with um you know classic wrestling and then i joined facebook a couple of years ago so i could see my grandkids pictures and i can't believe the amount of um websites that are dedicated to the classic era there's really a great i I had no idea i thought there was that it was dead but it seems to be as alive as ever today with podcasts like you're running and and a number of other people oh yeah it it absolutely is more of interest i think than ever before like you had the tales from the territory show on vice i don't i don't think you'd ever have had a show like that years ago there just wouldn't have been the impetus to do it so yeah i mean this is this is the moment for classic wrestling right right now yeah it certainly um it's revived my career (laughs) so to speak i mean i've done about 12 podcasts and um you know it's just been a lot of fun talking with people about that classic era um because it, it it just it was classic i mean in so many different ways i mean just working with these guys and um you know it was just so much fun Did it was ever, a lot looser i think than it is today yeah um, you, de- you definitely get that sense that especially in the ring there was a lot more kind of like freedom to to go on the fly and kind of not every single move was was planned ahead it was it's it felt much more organic back then even for the referees too well i i did a match with jerry lawler for northeast wrestling mike mike lombardi's um right northeast wrestling right. and um it was jerry lawler against mick foley and they decided they were going to have a 20 minute match and they were going to do every finish of every popular wrestler and i had to guess which one was going to be the true finish they wouldn't tell me Oh man! So you know, I mean, was, that was um, that was quite an experience. But working with those two, uh, anything um, 
uh, could happen. I remember working one of Mick's very first matches when Dominic DiNucci brought in new talent and was out in Long Island at a grammar school, I think. And Mick Foley was on the show, and I said, this guy is, is off the walls. He's going to make it. Uh, we were in a, we had a change in a janitor's closet, okay? So he said, geez, I'd like to take a shower. I'm really. So I said, so would I. He goes, oh, we will. And he brought a, he got a huge ladder and he climbed up and he turned on a water spigot that was on the ceiling that I guess you'd attach a hose to and he <laughs> let it run all over himself. And he took a shower that way. And uh, then I took one and then he climbed up and turned it off. So I said, this guy's, uh, this guy's uh, going to make it. He's a little off the walls, but he, he's definitely going to make it. <laughs> Just nuts enough to make it in the wrestling business, right? Yeah, but it, again, I, I actually, there's a picture of me on biography with him in the ring. He was in a tag team match, one of his, again, one of his first matches. He, um, Dominic could bring him up and it, we'd work from, he'd work for Mark Tendler out on Long Island or. Uh, out on the island usually and he was from the island and it was a tag team match and you can definitely see me uh for about i, I guess a good minute uh in the ring with him uh on on a biography which i which i kind of enjoyed seeing did you ever work did you ever work the tv tapings in pennsylvania that wwf used to do in the in the earlier part of the 80s like, no, like, I I got in a little bit after that. They okay. started doing tapings in places like Poughkeepsie after that. Um, okay. But I, I got in. Billy Caputo worked a lot of those, as you probably know. He was he had the bleach blonde hair. Yes, of course. With the, the bleach blonde hair, uh, and he and he was very helpful to me when I first came in. And he he worked a lot of those shows, and I heard a lot of stories about about those shows but no i never was out there i get in a little bit after that i i ended up working uh, mostly in the white plains new york city brooklyn bronx um area with them connecticut and then i worked um i i traveled because i always had a legitimate job right so i i, I did it weekends, summers evenings um, I could. I had the type of jobs where I could get away if I had to for several days or a few days, and I got picked up by a couple of the really um, big independent, good independents on the East Coast. An original Northeast Championship Wrestling, run by the late Tommy Jeanette. He used me exclusively as his referee, and um, in those days they used one ref. I'd have to do six, seven, eight matches because they want to save money. Right. Um, so I would, I would travel with them, and I got to travel and meet and become friendly with people like Toru Tanaka, the Sheik, uh, Abby, Bru Abby, the Butcher. Um, in those days, the independents were chock full of uh, either ex WWF stars or the WWF at that time would let them earn more money right. by working independents. I mean, can you imagine uh, Roman Reigns coming to Waterbury High School in Connecticut <laughs> to wrestle? Yet Bob Backlund wrestled in high schools and small arenas, you know. Well, you know, champion, I mean, the energy. that's the thing. I mean, in those days, they really took it seriously that those guys were supposed to be independent contractors. I mean, technically speaking, they should be able to work wherever they want. And I think even even to this day, WWE is the only company that has that really strict rule that their guys can't work anywhere. Like I think AEW even allows people to work, although they've been cracking down a little bit. The you know as long as it's not on television, things like that. But WWE has always been, or at least the last forty years, they've been so strict about not letting guys you know 
earn money anywhere else but there. Well, back work in, in back in those days, back in the eighties, um, they weren't making big money. Uh, Lou Albano was driving ca- a cab in Mount Vernon. He used to take my friends to a uh, Sunday school, and um, <laughs> what an so experience! Was, yeah, yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, brother, 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 get in a cab, brother, brother. Where are you going, brother, brother? You going to your church there, brother? All right, brother, we'll take you over to the church there, brother. Yeah, not to worry, not to worry. We'll get you there. Was there uh, ever I, any- I, his father? Go ahead. Go no, ahead. I was I was just going to say, was there ever any talk, or I'm assuming since you had a day job, when WWF was really going national and going outside the Northeast, was there ever an opportunity for you to go on the road with them outside the, to other parts of the country? I'll tell you a story about that. Um, I sat at the Nassau Coliseum, and I was on a runway watching a match with the chief, who was the um, strongbow, who was the agent, okay? Yeah. Joe? And uh, I said, Chief, I heard they're hiring. Um, I go, um, you think I should apply? And he looks down at me. And he says, you have a good job? I go, yeah. You got a pension? Yep. You get medical? Yeah. He goes, what are you, nuts? <laughs> so what are you, crazy? He's right. He He's said, right. Uh, how many shows you? He said, how many shows do you work here? I said, I, I don't know. I travel with a couple of the independents weekends, and I... I, it's hard to say. I, I probably do um, each month. I'm probably doing six, seven shows, eight shows. He goes, "What's wrong with that?" He says, "No." He says, "Forget it, kid. Just do what you're doing." I said, "Okay." He goes, "You really want to set up the ring?" I go, "No, not really." Mm-hmm. Yeah, so was- he, you know, he had told me stick, stick where you are, and, and and it worked out well. I mean, I um I got a lot of shows over the year. I worked with Mike. Uh, Lombardi and Northeast Wrestling for about 15 years, right from the very beginning and until I um, retired. I worked with Northeast Championship Wrestling. I worked with the United States Wrestling Federation, which was run by Bob Bailey. And before before they deregulated the refs, um, they would request me on shows, and the commissions were allowing independents to start requesting certain refs because they they wanted certain refs that they felt would work harder or better than some others. And then when the commission got deregulated, uh, most of, if not all of the state of refs kind of went by the road, except for Billy Caputo and myself, because we both established ourselves with independence, which I could see the day was coming. And I said to myself, Dave, uh, why don't you See if you can uh, line yourself up with some of the independents so you can continue working once the, that uh, day comes. And it came. Oh, I believe it. I, I know Dick Kroll told me that's when he got out of it. In the late 80s, he said they were they were really the, they were bringing all the referees in house and they offered it to him. You know, he was he was getting a little old and his knees and all this stuff. And he didn't want to have to go traveling all over the country and. He turned them down, and he kind of got out of refereeing by about 88, 89. Well, he had done it all as far as I'm concerned. He, um, you know, he had, he had all the classic matches, and he told me some fantastic stories. I don't know if he mentioned to you about the time where, was it Blackjack, Lonzer, or Mulligan got his leg? Uh, oh, yeah, Mulligan, yeah. Mulligan got his leg. A guy jumped in a ring, and he sliced Mulligan's leg, and he needed 100 stitches or more. And a guy left the ring, and um, Dick said that Gorilla Monsoon pushed him into a cop, and mm-hmm. the police officer thought he was part of the show and let him go, and he never caught the guy. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, he he told me that story, and, and that's crazy to think of. I think because if I remember it right, he said that Gorilla because it was a match between Pedro Morales and Blackjack Mulligan, and this guy came out of the crowd. He stabbed Mulligan, I think, in the calf, and he just like all the way down the calf, like really bad, just right mm-hmm. through the muscle and everything. Like a machete, right? Right. Yeah. And then he said Monsoon, who, as you know very well, you know, Monsoon helped run a lot of those shows. He was in the back and even when he wasn't wrestling. And so he runs out. And of course, he's out of character. He's not, you know, in any wrestling gear or anything. He runs out. He he catches the guy, basically, like you said. He apprehends the guy, and the cops just laugh it off. And yeah, and the guy just walked because they thought he was part of the show. Crazy. Did Dick tell you the story too about when Bruno lost the belt in the garden? Um, I think he probably did. Um, you mean Uh, the Ivan Koloff? Oh yeah, yeah. they didn't announce. They didn't announce that Koloff was the new champion. They were afraid there'd be such a riot that. Koloff and um, Albano might be killed. So they right. didn't announce it. Right. Kroll gave him the belt, and Dick told me he gave him the belt in the locker room. That they right. didn't even give him the belt in the ring because they were afraid. And Bruno thought he went deaf because the whole place, it was you could hear a pin drop. And Bruno thought that somehow he had lost his hearing, he said. And, he also, um, go ahead. He also told me, I don't know if he told you this part, but he said that when they went to the back afterwards, because you know, um, they didn't, the crowd was in such shock as everybody knows. There's that old story that you could hear a pin drop and all that. He said that yep. Bruno in the back was actually feeling actually very guilty. Like he was really torn up about it because he thought in his mind, like we really hurt all those people out there. Like, like we really, really upset them emotionally because they really believed it. And he felt Partly, at least, like he let everybody down. Like maybe we shouldn't have done that, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know and how you'd also, ever get the belt off of him otherwise. So he had to lose eventually. Um, and he 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 needed a rest at that point. Wanted to spend time with the family. He had given everything he had for a long time. But to to to, to um, conclude that story, um, Albano and uh, Volko, uh, Koloff ran out and jumped in a cab. And people were throwing rocks at the cab. They broke the cab window, from what I understand. They threw a beer bottle at the cab. Um, the um, the cab driver told him to get out of the cab. This is what I heard. The cab driver told him to get out of the cab, and they went into – there was a restaurant there right outside the garden. And the people followed them in there and broke windows. And uh, there was a real riot that went on after the match outside when people saw that they were coming out and they, they, they supposedly, they didn't even change. They went out in their um, ring attire. So I, I don't know. I, I believe that's the way it was told to me that they, um, that there was a real riot that went on. And I, I think, uh, I think that the WWF, which it was at that time had to pay some damages either to the restaurant or the cab or, or, or to the garden for, I guess, some, things that were broken i believe that's the way it was told to me i wasn't there but that's the way it was told to me so if it's not true um don't don't sue me i won't but But that's what i was that's what i was told but i also think and i I have a little theory about that because now then when bruno got the belt back and he held it for another three or four years now he lost it the second time to superstar billy graham and Mm -hmm. um 
they did that title change in Baltimore. And I mean, absolutely. In those days, they didn't do title changes out. You know, almost every big title change was at the Garden, especially the world title. And I really believe that that's the reason they did it in Baltimore is they didn't want to have a repeat of what happened with Koloff. And they figured if they do this in the Garden, again, they're going to burn the place down. So I think that's why they did it that way. I was told that. that I, I was told that, that they did definitely did it that way, that they were not going to have him lose the second time in the Garden because that was, that you know, like Yankee Stadium was a house that Ruth built. Well, um, the Garden was the house that uh, Bruno built. You know, I mean, he was there every six weeks, so, right? Six, seven weeks, sold out. What? How many years in a row? You know, so. And he, no, he worked it, harder it, than anybody. Well, that was the proudest moment I ever had in a ring. Was re- I got to referee a match of his after he retired? He came out of retirement for a match at the county center, and uh, it's the only time I ever asked the commission to work a specific match. I said I, I have to do the Bruno match. And they gave me the match, and we got in the ring. And before the match, I went out in the audience. People didn't have cell phone cameras in those days, right? Or cameras, you know. So I went out, and a guy had a a, a triple lens camera, one of those extended lenses. And I said, "Gee, if Bruno wins, will you take my picture?" I, I, I said, "I'll pay you anything." I said, "No, I'll take it for you and give you the picture." So I got in the ring with Bruno, and he wins the match. And I raised his hand, but we're on the opposite side of the ring. So I said, "Bruno, come with me." <laughs> and he goes, "Are we on television?" I said, "No, but you got you got to come with me. I'll tell you why in the locker room." So we go all the way over to the other side of the ring, and I, I, I'm raising his hand for about a minute, and he doesn't know what's going on. And I got the picture, and we got the locker room, and I told him, and he got the biggest kick out of that. He he <laughs> thought that was just hilarious. He said, "That's unbelievable." I said, "Well, Bernie, you don't remember." But I met you when I went to the New York World's Fair in 1964, and I said, you're at the Budweiser Pavilion. You had a quarter keg on each shoulder. He goes, yeah, I still got the marks from those. And he goes, and I said, I waited till everybody left. I was an eighth grader, and I waited till everybody left. And I went over, and I said, I'm so sorry. I wish I had paper and pencil. I'll probably never get to meet you again. But can I just talk to you? Man, talk to me for seven or eight minutes. That's amazing. You know, I sat down. You know, amazing. I don't think I ever knew that he was at the 64 World's Fair. I don't think I've ever heard anybody tell that story. I believe it was the it was Budweiser Pavilion, but he 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 had a quarter keg on each shoulder and he was walking around the crowd to show he was one of the strongest men in the world. And uh I happened to see it advertised like when we got to the fair, I saw his picture and I said, Bruno will be appearing here at, let's say, 11 o'clock. And I was with my relatives and I said, I got to go. They, oh, we're not really interested. I said, I don't care. I'm going over there. I'll meet you in about 20 minutes, but I'm going to see this man for one time in my life. And um, I never thought I'd ever see him again. Now, little did I know 20 years later or so, <laughs> I'd be standing in a ring with him. Um, so it, it was just, that was the greatest thrill I, I've ever had in a ring Two, There were two really, that was one of them. The other one was the first time I worked the garden when, when the lights and the garden went out and the ring lights came on. I had the first match of the evening and Howard Finkel goes, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And 16,000 people erupted at the same time. My body was covered with goosebumps. <laughs> it was amazing. So those, those are the two greatest highlights that, that, I, that I experienced in the ring. Well, I want to go back a little bit because you, you, you we're talking about now 
meeting Bruno that first time and you're a kid in 64 mm-hmm. And we had talked about this before, but I think you first started watching as a fan, you said, in 1959. Is that right? About 1959. Yes, 1959, 1960. Um, it was on TV um, from Washington, D.C. Um, right around that time. Ray Morgan was the announcer, I believe. And um, friendly Bob Freed was the um, was the ring announcer at that time. And there was another fellow. I forget his name. And uh, yeah, and um, the people in the audience were all dressed in suits and ties. The men and the women were dressed in um, dresses and hats, and they stood there stoically looking at the matches, <laughs> like um, you know, glued glued to their seats. It, it was, but I didn't know what I was watching. My brother and I, my father bought a TV set home Christmas Day, nineteen fifty nine, nineteen sixty. And he brought it home and he plugged it in. It was a box with a cord on it, small picture. And we, there was only three stations and we started shuffling through the stations. And I get to these two guys and look like a boxing ring, but they're not wearing gloves. And they're beating the crap out of each other. And my brother and I glued to the television going, hey, this is pretty cool. It's like what we do in the backyard. And, and they were beating each other up. And I said, well, what are we watching? And then the guy gets in the ring and he announces the winner of the match by a pinfall. And this guy, Ray Morgan, had, was smoking a cigarette and drinking coffee ringside. <laughs> right. And he had a microphone. And he said, um, and be with us next week for more championship wrestling. Well, my brother and I became wrestling junkies. And uh, we decided to form our own league on the front lawn and. um I would be the face in some, he would be the heels in some, and vice versa, and the next one, and we kept charts in our room, and I started buying the wrestling magazines, and uh, little did I know, like, if I was Bobo Brazil in one match, that 20 years later, I'd be working with the real McCoy. So it was like, um, it was almost like a dream come true. I, I loved wrestling from the time I was 10. And uh, never thought I'd have, I, I knew I wasn't going to be a wrestler, but I never thought I'd be um, be in the ring. But thanks to the challenge of a friend, we were watching um, pro wrestling on TV one night when I was teaching and living in Ardsley, New York. And um, I said, boy, the ref's doing a lousy job. My friend says, you think he could do better? I said, yeah. And he said, well, why don't you? And that's what got me on my path to, you know, to look into it and to try to get a license. And where were you, uh, as a kid, where did you live? Where were you growing up? Was it New York? Uh, Mil- a small mill town called Millbury, Massachusetts, in the center of Massachusetts. And everyone worked in a mill, and everybody knew everybody. And it was a small blue-collar work town. And I was so excited because I saw on television that the wrestlers were coming um, to the Worcester Memorial Auditorium which was about 20 minutes from my house and a WWF was going to be there Curtis Iakia against Bruno San Martino in the main event. And I was in high school at the time and I begged and after wearing my parents down, they let my brother and I go by ourselves because they would have ruined the show for us. So <laughs> we went by ourselves and we had front row seats and noticed that we were one of the few kids in the arena. Everybody else was smoking, drinking, betting on the matches. You couldn't see the ring. There was so much smoke. And we were walking around the hallway hoping to find and meet a wrestler. So all of a sudden, we hear somebody behind us go, hey, kids. And we looked around, and there's Curtis Iakia. Wow. And he goes, you know where the men's room is? I said, uh, I think so. And I showed him the men's room, and then 
we followed him afterwards to to the door that said wrestlers and referees only and uh we sat ringside and wrestlers got thrown in front of us and i mean it was um see the, the beast was on the show against uh chief big heart and uh people like that and uh, we could see we could we could see the bumps we could hear the bumps uh, we could see the excitement they were thrown out of the ring in front of us and saying to myself wow does life get any better than this you know <laughs> what a memory but wow that was my introduction uh introduction to um to, to pro wrestling and uh, little did again little did i know that i'd be working with bruno who was in the main event um you know 20 some years later and um you know it, it's funny how life you know has twists and turns and sometimes yeah. you catch a break and you follow your dream and sometimes you can get to it oh i yeah i mean i can I'm definitely, it's a little later than your story is, but I could relate to a lot of that because I would have those moments where I'm going, you know, same thing. I, I watched this guy on TV when I was a kid and now here I am in a, in riding in a rental car with him or, or I'm sitting at a bar with him or I'm, I'm backstage interviewing him. And you, you get those surreal kinds of moments um, that, especially for for somebody when you grow up as a fan, and then you actually get involved in the business, you know. But but in the time you're talking about, like you said, there weren't a lot of kids that were there at the shows. It was, in fact, I think at the garden, children were still banned. Like I don't know how old you were, but I think you had to be at least fourteen or fifteen to be to to even have admission to Madison Square Garden in those days. I was probably fourteen or fifteen. Okay. Um, my brother was a little bit younger, a couple years younger, but. I bought the tickets and um, again, it was, um, you know, like I say, I looked around and it was strange because there were very few kids there and not a whole lot of women. Um, and I think some of the women that were there could have beat up the wrestlers, you know, they were <laughs> pretty tough looking babes right. there, but uh, it was, a, it, 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 it was a great experience for me to be able to see that, to see it live. So, you know, in those days, it was the Worldwide Wrestling Federation or even Capital Wrestling. And then you went on to to work for them when they were the WWF. And you also, did you work shows when um, the NWA or and WCW started to move in to the Northeast? Did you do some of their shows, too? Because I know they were I running. Did, I did. Yeah, I did some NWA shows. I did one in Mount Vernon when I first came into the East, when, when Vince was going to their territories, they started reciprocating. They came to the Meadowlands and they came to New York and I had a chance to, to referee Magnum TA. I know in a match, um, for them, I, I did superstar Graham against, um, Sam Houston. Cause I, I, I don't, I remember these because I kept all my programs. So when I was writing a book, I got all these notes and my programs out to find out who I worked with and, what would a date so I'd be accurate in the book. But um I had been taught by Johnny, um, who was the booker for Northeast Championship Wrestling and continued giving me instructions. He said, You get your face down by their shoulders, you get your head by their shoulders, you get on your stomach, and so that you can see that the shoulders are pinned. Well, when Sam Houston got pinned by um by um superstar, superstar, Graham, yeah. superstar. I went down for the count and I got right on his shoulders and I was right there and I went one, two, three. And, uh, Houston looks at me and he goes, Oh my God, a New York ref did actually inside of work. 
<laughs> because I'd been taught, you know, get down by the shoulders. You got to make it look real. Some of these guys, um, even today, they'll be on the other side of the ring on an independent show counting on their knees. Yeah. Couldn't possibly see if the shoulders are down. So I was old school and I was old school for the 32 years, but I, I had a chance to work with a number of NWA. And then there was a uh, group called um, USA Wrestling, USA Pro Wrestling. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pro Wrestling USA. Yes, they got Pro Wrestling USA. They got to, they, they they took the NWA, the AWA, and Georgia Wrestling and combined their talents. And I remember working a show in Staten Island, I believe it was. Um, it was it was my next to Bruno was probably my second greatest match that I enjoyed uh, doing that I remember. And that would have been Nick Blackwinkle with the AWA belt going against. Oh no, Martell had the belt, and Blackwinkle was trying to get it back. So it was Rick Martell against. Nick Bockwinkle, and in the corner of Bockwinkle managing him was Buddy Rogers. Wow. So I actually got to work with three great champions, Bockwinkle, Martell, and Rogers. And at the end of the match, uh, I think um, at the end, uh, what happened was um, uh, Martell pinned Bockwinkle, but he had his foot over the rope, and I missed it. At least that's what they told me. I don't know for sure. <laughs> but, but that uh, – uh, <laughs> I missed it, and Rogers came in the ring, and him and I were arguing face-to-face, nose-to-nose, and I'm pointing my finger at him. I'm going, I cannot believe I'm standing here arguing with the uh, first WWF champion, and and that was a great thrill for me. A, ma- a match like that, I, I mean, Bockwinkle and Rick Martell, I mean, that that had to be a workout for you to keep up with that. I can't even imagine. It was exciting. I, I loved matches where... There were a number of false finishes where the guys could really work, where there weren't a lot of rest holes. Um, it was the classic wrestlers I loved working with. Harley Race. I mean, Harley Race, I, I did a couple of his matches when he was the king. And, um, I mean, I just had such respect for him uh, as being one of the and, – and it was hard to believe at times that you're in the ring with these legends – um, and it's something, you know, I'll always cherish and I'll always remember. I loved working. I loved working with the legends, Bob Backlund, people like Backlund on the independent circuit. And I mean, Bob was a great guy too. He, uh, we were on the independent circuit after he left Vince and, um, he was wrestling a kid one night and it just show you the kind of guy he was, he's wrestling a kid one night and we're in the locker room. Bob goes, you know what? hometown kid he goes let's let the guy work let's not have a short match we'll let let the guy work let him throw me around let him do his thing let's make him look strong in front of the hometown people and and you know and that's the kind of guy he was he he what he had no ego at least not that i saw at least not that night i mean there weren't too many ex-champions that i would find who would be willing to let a young kid who was new um you know go over and look good on him that's a gift. I mean, any, any wrestler will tell you, especially a young up and coming wrestler. I mean, that is a real gift from a veteran, something like that. Yeah. But the, the, the guys from the classic era, they, they had a lot of class, you might say they, they really did. Um, but I, I could tell you an interesting story one night where yeah. um, the, the WWF champion was not in the main event. Um, I did a show in Staten Island again. They had, Bob Backlund down as a champion on the posters because he had not lost to the Sheik. But by the time the show came around, he had lost to the Sheik, okay? 
So Bob was not the champion, but he got the main event pay and he went on as the main event because he was advertised as such. And the Sheik who had the belt was not was not in the, was not in the main event. And I, I don't think you've seen that too many times in the WWF. No, because usually I think what they'll do in a case like that is they'll just change the they'll change the matches. They'll just change it around. They won't even still do the advertised match. Like if you have a new champion, I so when the Iron Sheik came out, did he have the belt in his match, or was it not even yeah. acknowledged? He did. No, he he had the belt, but again, he wasn't on a poster uh, uh, as the main event, and I guess they, that's why they kind of let him. You know, they let Bob go on, um, go on as the main event, and um, you know that that was kind of an unusual thing, to, to, to say the least. Um, the Sheik almost got me. Um, really in trouble one night almost got me hurt and he didn't even know it i thought he was i thought he was pulling a rib on me we're at an independent show and um the camel clutch had been banned and supposedly on tv you know but he used right, the right. camel clutch he used the camel clutch it was a small independent show up in elmira or something he used the camel clutch and i i, I let the guy submit so I get out of the ring, and these four guys who had been drinking pretty heavily threw me under the bleaches and told me I had to go back in and change the and 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 award the match to the other guy because the camel clutch had been um, banned in New York. These guys were serious; they, they they were ready to beat me up because they said he can't use the camel clutch. I'm going, oh my god! He's, you know, hey, guys, guys, loosen up a little bit. <laughs> so fortunately. I came up with this solution, and I said, "Well, the chief, uh, the, the the sheik is suing the state commission, and um, because they won't let him use his finishing hold, and since it's in a lawsuit, the state said he could use it until the lawsuit was settled. So it was. I said, you can you can call the state office if you want to, and they kind of looked at me like strange, and I just walked away. And I went in the locker room, and I said, sheik." Said was was this a setup? Did you did you did you talk these guys into doing that? And he knew, he had no idea what I was talking about. But um, I said, well, you almost got me in a lot of trouble tonight, there, my friend. That's thinking on your feet, though. I have to hand it to you. I mean, that is that's quick thinking. I, I enjoyed working with the Sheik, though. Um, he, um, I, I remember one night he was wrestling Slaughter on the independent circuit. This is right. after they had had their feud with with the WWF, and we're on the independent circuit. and And the Sheik always liked me. He called me Referee Dave. He used to travel with NCW and most of their shows. And uh, he said, Dave, "Referee Dave, I make you look good tonight. I take off my boot with the hook. I go to hit slaughter. He duck. I hit you in the forehead. I slice you a little bit. And I go, uh, um, I don't think so. No <laughs> oh, thanks." Man. Oh man! And I said, "She, it's not in my contract. I, I, I don't believe blood stays in my head." He goes, "But I want to make you look good. You, you will look so good that people will pop. Just think of it." I said, "No, I don't want to think about it. I might get sick. I, that's okay. Thank you for thinking of me and wanting me to look good. But I, I think we'll pass on that." You know, I've talked uh, to referees. I've talked to referees who said that something like that would happen without them even telling them ahead of time. The next thing they know, all of a sudden, blood is running down their face. One of the guys cut them without even letting them know they were going to do it. Yeah, well, he was kind enough to give me a warning. Yeah, really. So that I could tell him, thank you. Thank you very much. But I think we'll pass on that. Yeah. 
but I, he was a, he was always fun to work with. I always enjoyed. We tra- I traveled with him quite a bit, and it, he was he was a good guy. Uh, I always enjoyed enjoyed his company. One thing I was curious about because you had mentioned before that story about Magnum TA and Sam Houston when Sam Houston was impressed, you know, with how you worked. Did you find from from the referee's perspective work in the WWF shows in the big arenas? And then working some of the NWA shows when they came to the same buildings, was there any difference backstage in the way that the show was run from your point of view, or or, or was it all the same to you? Well, I, I I think you know having grown up on TV and having spent most of my time with the WWF, you you, you kind of got used to them. Um, I always liked working with the nwa and the awa because i thought they were after hogan came in i thought they were sticking more closely to the wrestling in the sport mm. as compared the wwf was drifting away a little bit from it and the nwa and the awa was still doing a lot of the traditional stuff you might say and not that it you know, the WWF obviously was more popular with the crowd because they brought in the kids, they brought in the women with the rock and wrestling and so forth. Um, I think when the NWA and the AWA came in back in those days, I think they were getting a little nervous that they were like losing a little bit of a grip on because it had all been all NWA at one time, obviously, right. as you sure. know. Yeah, um, I, I think they were kind of nervous. I noticed a little bit of a nervousness about them because they weren't drawing as well as the WWF on the East Coast because obviously they were the new kids in town. And I mean, when we were growing up, the only people that know knew that there was more than one league was people like myself who bought magazines because you'd see the NWA, the AWA, and the WWF. Because if you were growing up in the fifties and sixties like me, um. They only mentioned Bruno. All the magazines had Bruno because they were from New York. So you got almost all WWF people at that time. Um, the NW, but you could see that there was an NWA and an AWA. So I was aware of that, but most people were not. So when they came in, they weren't, many of them maybe weren't even all that familiar with them, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and those magazines were really the only way to know back then. And I think it really helped the WWF because, um, you know, they were a regional operation and they had Bruno as their champion, but because they were lucky enough to be where all the big cities were in the Northeast and where the publishing companies were and the magazines that Bruno got a lot of press. And so I think it helped to elevate him to be on the same level, let's say, as the NWA champion, even though the NWA world champion was wrestling in a lot more different places and going all over the country and in some cases to other countries and things. But because of the magazines, it 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 made Bruno really seem like he was on that level. And as you mentioned, the, the big cities, I mean, the WWF, every month we'd go, they'd start in Washington, and then they'd go to Baltimore, then they'd go to Philly, then they would go to uh, Madison Square Garden, they'd go to White Plains, they'd go to Connect Hartford, they'd go to Boston Garden, and then they would go up to uh, Maine, I believe it was, or New Hampshire. And what was happening was they would fill in shows during the week. That's why I got to work a lot of small shows uh, in high schools and colleges with the um, WWF. I worked a show at Mount Vernon High School. There were 12 matches. Uh, Lou Albano and his brother, who was a principal of the school, Lou's brother was principal of the school in Mount Vernon. He, they, um, they had a show. 
they had 12 matches. And I remember the 12th match was the tag team championship. And I think it was um, Beefcake and uh, Valentine against um, who, who, the Bulldogs, maybe. That was the last match of the evening. So can you imagine a match like that taking place in, in a high school? Well, to get back to the WWF, see, I guess they didn't fly in those days. So the WWF had easy chance. Uh, it was much easier for them to drive. to. They had a whole bunch of large arenas and a large group of people in a, in, in, in a relatively confined area of the East Coast. They didn't have to do a lot of traveling. And I right. think that helped them tremendously. To, oh, especially sure. to, to garner the fans, because that's where um, the big arenas were at that point in time. Most of them, except for maybe Chicago and a few other places. Well, and and they were big population centers, like you said. You didn't have to go very very far. I mean, you hear about some territories where you know, like in Texas or or elsewhere in the South, Mid South, and things where you're driving these in unbelievable distances from town to town and show to show to the point where it didn't even make sense. The amount of money you were paying for gas and food and everything else. And, and um, they just, and they just didn't have the same population. So you, if you look at a map and you say, if you look at a map of the U S and you look at where WWF was promoting and you go, well, that's only a little tiny sliver of the country, but <laughs> you're forgetting the, the amount of huge cities that were in that are in that tightly confined part of the country. Oh yeah. And, and like I say, they would give you shows in between and, and um, it's smaller just to give the boys an extra payday. You know what I'm saying? Cause they certainly weren't making the money that they're making today to, to say the least. Um, no, but, but again, uh, the smaller shows were a lot of fun because the people were closer. Um, usually the big brass wasn't there. So the wrestlers were a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more relaxed, you might say, uh, on some of those small shows. But um, uh, you, you had a chance to commingle. Um, there's one in particular that stands out, if I could tell a story. Um, we were in Bedford-Stuyvesant. I think it was the night the Sheik's car got torched in the parking lot. Um, and we were in Bedford-Stuyvesant. We're in a ring at a high school, Catholic high school. and. Um, Freddie Blassie is managing the cheek and I'm in a ring and Freddie comes into the ring. It's the first time I work with Freddie and we became pretty good friends after that. We live near each other in Westchester and became good friends and he gets in a ring and we used to get paid. A lot of people don't know we got paid according to the number of people in attendance. I don't know if you knew that or not. Sure. Yep. Um, so, um, Freddie looks up in the balcony <laughs> And just to show you the, the the kind of conversations that would go on in a ring, he was probably holding a cane over my head, threatening to hit me with it. And he goes, Dave, first of all, I think we're in a lot of trouble because the people in the audience are tougher looking than the wrestlers. <laughs> and I said, I think you're right, Freddie. And he said, look, he said, there's a guy up in the balcony. The guy had to weigh 450 pounds. He was sitting on two seats. He looks me straight in the eye and I can't laugh. And he says, you better tell Skolan when you get back to the locker room that go up in the balcony and check that guy. He better have bought two tickets because one more ticket could put us into the next pay category. <laughs> That's amazing. And I said, Fred, Freddie, Freddie, I said, we'll be lucky if the uh, balcony doesn't collapse with that guy up there. And he goes, uh, well, what a week here. We'll get paid and we'll go home early. <laughs> uh, those are the kind of great conversations you would have with those guys in the ring. 
while we're waiting for the uh, wrestlers to to come in. But uh, he he was one of a kind, Freddie. I I had the um, I had a lot of funny experiences. He was never he was never off um, off stage. I don't know if you you must have known him when you work with WWF, right? I I ran into him. He was very old by the time I got there. He wasn't in the office anymore. He popped in a couple of times. I ran into him in an elevator once and, you know, at at Titan tower, didn't have a whole lot of dealings with him. You know, he, he was, he had, he had gone home by that point. Okay. He was one of the classics. Um, You know, I I remember one time there was one time I will say, and this was a big moment for me where I almost couldn't contain myself. Uh, it was, I think, probably one of the last garden shows that Freddie came back backstage at. It was in the very early 2000s. And Arnie Skolin was still coming to all the shows with his wife, Betty. He would always come to the mm-hmm. garden, even though he didn't really have any anything to do, you know. And I remember Blassie breaking his balls in the back, like, you know, because <laughs> Arnie had stopped dyeing his hair. So his hair was all white. And Freddie was riding him about it. You're 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 white. You look like a white-haired old man, Skolin. Skolin, why do you why why'd you stop dyeing your hair? And 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 Arnie's not having any of it. And just you know, Freddie, shut the hell up. Leave me alone. Like you know, we're not even oh, yeah, on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not even on TV anymore. And I felt like yeah. I, I'm watching something that is just it's only happening right in front of me, and no one else can see. Freddie Blassie and Arnold Skolin arguing with each other backstage at Madison Square Garden. I mean that was that was wild. Well, I um for 23 years I ran the largest tax office in Westchester County uh, in in the state of New York. We collected half a billion dollars a year in taxes, 10 school districts, uh, and I was the elected official for 12 of those years, tax collector, tax receiver. I collected Arnie's taxes, I collected Freddie's taxes, and I collected the taxes of Paul Heyman. I, I collected all three, and um, I have to. Can I, I want to tell you a funny story about Freddie comes into my. Well, Freddie used to come in the office all the time and go, "How can I get my taxes lower?" And I kept telling him, "Move out of Westchester, you know, and <laughs> you can get them all." But he came in one day, and I had a new. I had a new clerk. I had my own office, and the clerks are out in a big office. And he comes in with the gold cane, and he's banging on the counter. He starts banging on the counter, going, uh, "Where's the Where's the supervisor? Now the supervisor of the town is the mayor. Okay, where's the supervisor's office? Where's the supervisor's office? Tell me where his office is. I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to body slam him on his desk. And I'm, and so the woman comes running into my office, and she said, there, there, there's, "There's a wild man out there." I said, "No, no, that's Freddie." She goes, "You know him?" I said, "I work with him." <laughs> okay, so I, I said, I'll, "I'll." So I said, "Freddie, come on in the office." So he comes in the office. And he says, uh, where, where, where's, this, where's the supervisor's office? I'm, I'm going to take. I said, what's the problem, Freddie? He, I, I said, if you go in and body slam him, I, I'm going to have to call the cops. He says, shit, you're going to be calling the ambulance. <laughs> so I said, no, no, Freddie. So he had wild cats running around in his front lawn. And, his, and the supervisor evidently said he would take care of them. And he didn't. He, he had other things on his mind, I guess, running the town and Freddie's cat. So I called the animal warden and had him taken care of. And save the life of the uh, town supervisor but wow. um freddie was not freddie was never never off camera he always was on camera even even if it was just the two of us sitting there i went i, to I would his, say go, ahead, go i went to his house in hartsdale when he passed we went down there to help his wife miyako with some things you know the company wanted to help her out 
with mm-hmm. some of his memorabilia and things. So I've been I've been in his house, but he had a, he had already passed away by that point. Yeah, I went to his funeral and sat behind Vince actually at the at the funeral uh, for for Freddie. Um, and um, he he uh, he he was he was just a really really funny guy. Um, and um, you know, I, I, he was one of the real one of the real characters um, in the business that I'd, I'd say I had the pleasure of working with over the years. And we just got, we hit it off right from the beginning. I would ask him questions like, uh, first time I met him, I said, uh, but after a while, I knew that you could egg him on a little bit. So I'd egg him on and go, hey, I, I heard Gorgeous George was really tough in the ring. Oh, shit. He didn't know the difference between a toenail and a toehold. <laughs> That that's what he would say. No, no wrestler was ever as tough as Freddie. Of course not. He was the, tough, the toughest of all times, you know. So. so, so Dave, when did you get out of uh, refereeing? When did you stop, and and why did you stop? Well, um, besides putting on a little weight and losing a little hair, um, I was in my sixties, I guess my mid sixties, and um, it was a match with. Um, uh, Kurt Angle against Samoa Joe, and Roddy Piper was in the ring. It was not it was not too long after that that Roddy had passed on. Roddy was in the ring, and I was outside the ring. And I'd never really I'd gotten hurt in the rings, bruised ribs. This I pulled a groin muscle one night bad, but never really anything that stopped me from continuing. Well, the the idea was that um, Roddy was going to look down at me. He was on the mic and say, referee, get in here and you start this match. Well, I jumped up, I rolled in and I caught my boot on the, um, I had cut off wrestling boots and, and, um, I caught my boot on the ring apron and I tore a meniscus in my uh, knee. My knees were already a little weak from over the years of bouncing off them. I, I, I wore uh, large knee pads under my pants. Um, after the, in the old days, you know, the rings were, um, they were um, a, a material like uh, canvas, and they'd ripple. You know, they'd ripple, and you'd get ripples in a ring by the last match. And I had actually worn sneakers the first few times, and then I pulled a groin muscle, and then I went out and got wrestling boots. Well, I tore my meniscus, and I'd had a lot of um, a lot of um, arthritis in there. Well, the next match, I my knee caved in on me a few times. I was having trouble getting up without having the ropes help me and my wife said you're embarrassing the promotion you're embarrassing yourself so i was at home and i said well i'm gonna go back and try she goes i'm not going because my knee would blow up after the matches Mm -hmm. Uh, she'd have to drive home so she said i'll make a deal with you if you can get up off the floor get on your knees or you get off the floor without grabbing anything i'll go with you i couldn't do it so I ended up uh, going to doctors, and I tried a few more times, and then I finally had a. I finally realized I, I used to tell myself, you know, these guys are um, don't they know when it's time to hang it up? And I realized I was one of those guys. And uh, Mike was kind enough to let me do a, a final match, and then it was actually a it wasn't a match; it was a battle royal, and that was my uh, in 2015. And that was the last time I basically worked, and um, it was because of that. I, the time had come. I, I had put on a little weight, and uh, I, you know, I was, I was, you know, probably 66, 65 at the time, and, and it, it, the time had come. But uh, I got very bitter after that. By the way, I, I didn't want to watch wrestling. I didn't want to go to a show if I couldn't be part of it. Uh, what was it hurt too much? It actually hurt to watch it. Yeah, and and and, and not be part of it. 
But um, I get over that. Well, um, yeah. I mean, you know, look, you were part of so many incredible moments and matches and in there with so many legends over 32 years. I mean, it's a pretty enviable career as a referee, honestly. Uh, yes, I, I was, um, you know, I was I was proud of the fact that I, I, I did stick around. And I, a, a lot of it was thanks to Mike, Mike Lombardi, too. I have to put a tip of the hat to him. Yes, he kept me. I, I, yeah, I think he would have kept me if I came in the ring with a walker. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. we started out together when he first started 15 years prior. And um, I was his only referee. Um, and then as time went on, you know, it was one ref and then it was two refs. And then I became the senior ref and did a couple matches later in my career. He used to call me a senior referee. I think it was because I had an AARP card. <laughs> Literally but, um, senior referee. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, he, he was wonderful and he extended my career for me and he was just a pleasure. And he always had good talent on his show. So I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to speak so much. I'm talking too much. No, you're not. You're the guest. You, you. If I'm talking too much, that's when it's the problem. But, but, but I just want to. I want to thank you because just for giving me for being so generous with your time. Uh, you know, I know we went a little longer than I told you we'd go, but but these are just incredible stories and 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 memories, and I I'm just grateful that you would come on the show to talk about them. And, you know, for obviously for anybody that wants to find out more, as I mentioned at the beginning, the book is called ring man, my 32 years in the surreal world of pro wrestling. And you can hear about all the stuff that Dave has talked about. And a whole lot more than that. Uh, just uh, the memories of an incredible career inside the wrestling business. Well, I'm the one should be thanking you because um you're you're i'm 73 now and i, I thank god i'm still pretty healthy and um it, it's kind of made me still uh, these these the podcasts that i've been doing especially with younger people um it's making me feel like i'm still part of the business and it's it's so wonderful that people are still interested in hearing stories and and interested in that classic period and um you know i i i get asked some time to compare yesterday to today and you can't do it it's impossible Two different eras, two different times, um, and wrestlers today are much quicker, much bigger, like in all sports. So um, I never want to compare the two. They they all had their strong points and they all had their weak points, but they all were part of a timeline. And I just, you know, been thankful to God that I've been part of that timeline for thirty two years. Absolutely, and that's really all I've been trying to do here with this show is just keep these stories alive and these memories, and and get people like yourself to to share and so that maybe the younger people and younger yeah. listeners can can learn and take an interest and and really like you said before right now this kind of stuff is of more interest it seems like than ever before so thanks for being a part of it you're very welcome and thank you for having me there you have it folks my conversation with dave dwinnell and I hope that you feel that it lived up to the way that I described it. Truly an unexpected and fascinating stroll down memory lane. And really, if, as I said before, if you want to see those stories and more collected in one place, I do encourage you to pick up Dave's book, Ring Man. I'll be posting a link to it, as I said, in the Facebook group for Shut Up and Wrestle. But you can also find it online if you give it the old Google search. The book is Ring Man by Dave Dwinell. Now, looking ahead to next week, 
I've got something special, which I really didn't even have much time to hype or announce, but it's happening. Next week's guest on Shut Up and Wrestle, really one of the most recognizable faces of WCW, one of the longest running WCW careers of anybody. It's going to be Marcus Alexander, a.k.a. Buff Bagwell. That's right. Buff is the stuff, and he's coming to Shut Up and Wrestle next week for episode 56. Do not miss that. You don't want to miss it. And keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. I've been mentioning some of the future guests in the weeks to come. I'm blessed to really have a bunch of these ready to go, and I can't wait to share them with you. I've got WWE artist and character designer Tom Fleming. I have got Michael Cavaccini, the author of the upcoming book on the history of TNA Impact Wrestling. I've got promoter and referee A.T. Huck from the Michigan area. I've also got Phil Schneider of the Way of the Blade book and podcast and The Ringer. He is on the way, working on some other ones for you. I'm always working. I'm always out there hustling. And you folks out there, you get to enjoy the fruits of my labor. So keep listening. And how do you listen? Well. S-U-A-W-Pod.com is our website. You can also find it wherever you find great podcasts. Podcast Addict, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, you name it. So get out there, subscribe, listen to the show, let me know what you think. And I mentioned the Facebook group before, of course, we're growing all the time. So please do join it. It's Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. And I post stuff there all the time. Like I just said, I'm going to be putting up links to Dave Joinelle's book, Ring Man, in that group. So join the group and you get extra content like that. It's a lot of fun. Also, if you're interested in reading the articles that I write for some of the finest pro wrestling magazines in the world, some of the only pro wrestling magazines in the world, you can read my articles in Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And you can get copies of PWI at pwi-online.com. You can also find my articles in Inside the Ropes magazine at insidetheropesmagazine.com. I mentioned at the beginning of the show, autographed copies of Blood and Fire. You can also get it the, the regular unautographed way, if you so choose, on amazon.com or at Barnes & Noble, either the website or even your local Barnes & Noble, if you're lucky to have one. And if you are lucky to find one still in stock there, you can get it. You can listen to me on the PWI podcast as well with my co-host Al Castle, and you'll find that podcast again where you find all of your wrestling and other kinds of podcasts. The Wrestling News from Arcadian Vanguard, your morning dose of well, wrestling news, that's why we call it that. And I'm proud to put it together with the rest of the Arcadian Vanguard team. Please listen and subscribe if you haven't already, thewrestlingnews.com. If you want to find me on social media, you will find me at Twitter and Instagram, at Brian R. Solomon. And you'll also find me on Facebook, my, my author page on there, which is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any one of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website out there on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that those who can't do, teach. And those who can't teach, teach Jim. So long, wrestling fans. 